Well, you know, the points don't really matter, right? Yeah, points don't really matter. What's 125 <laughs> points? Yeah. <laughs> One million points. It's like, whose line is it anyways? Welcome to middle school where the points are made up and the learning is real. Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 64, Rubrics and Assessments. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder that teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I am a teacher that codes. So Kelly, it's a rare weekend recording for us because we are just starting spring break. We actually have some time to catch up on a few things we've been working on. So what's your big project this weekend? Wow. So I'm still working on my book stand, trying to diminish the amount of books on my nightstand, I should say, not my book stand, move them off my nightstand onto my book stand. I did make it through two last week. My big time goal is just to get through the rest of my books that are sitting there. Tons of them. Nice. I have a couple of nice. uh, AI, AI books and some scrum books left by Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, know what that's like. I have a couple new books coming in for data analytics and machine learning that I'm ready to dig into and, and learn a little bit more. And I think David Amos's new Python basics books through RealPython is sitting on my doorstep right now. So after the podcast, I'm going to go pick it up and dig into it a little bit and see what he's put together for that. I know I have the ebook version of it, but there's something just more satisfying about the physical copy. Yeah, it's so exciting for them too, right? Yeah, I, I think they launched and they hit number one on the Python programming books bestseller list. And I think if I saw it correctly, they're at number 83 on the top 100 books on Amazon overall. So it's pretty exciting to see a nice big launch for them. The folks over at RealPython and David in particular have been really good friends over the last couple of years and really helped us learn a lot. So it's pretty exciting to see. Yeah, and we also have uh, Al Swigert's book. We're looking at, right? Yeah, we'll and get to that a little bit later in the podcast. I think we're going to do a little bit of a special book review session or maybe a little mini book review and talk about it. But there's a new book coming out soon called The Big Book of Small Python Projects. So it's kind of fun to, to dig into and have some ideas for how we can use it in the classroom. Very cool. Cool. Very cool. So before we get any further, wins of the week, Kelly, same place we start every week, something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. Well, we were kind of talking about this, but I, I out-nerded you, so I guess that has to be my win of the week, right? The <laughs> fact that I knew something completely dorky, well, I researched it, but I still knew it before you knew it, which is a first, and I feel like that's a huge win. <laughs> yeah, it was it was funny because you, you were making a new t-shirt for the online store, and you sent it over to me, and I was like, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was just like, I can't believe you don't get it. And then I sent back, it was, it's about the ghost. So I was doing some research about, because I loved Pac-Man. That's probably the only game that I used to play back in the days. I would go crazy when I would see them at a, a restaurant or a little bowling alley or something. And I, or like my parents would always take us to KOAs camping all over the world and all over the United States. And we would always see these Pac-Man games. So I would play it all the time. I didn't really appreciate coding as much, obviously, back then. But out of the four ghosts, only Blinky was set to follow Pac-Man. All the other ones had grid-like tracking, I guess, or I don't know. They were like set up in a grid pattern. So Blinky actually, the algorithms that were written for Blinky were to go to the place where Pac-Man had last been. And so as you increase in the level... Blinky starts going faster, right? And then he reaches a, a state called Cruz Elroy state. And that's when Blinky is now running at the same pace as Pac-Man, thus making it harder to not get eaten by or stopped by the ghost. So I thought it was pretty right. cool. There's no real blocks or anything like that. There's no way to slow him down. He moves at the same pace you do. So you have to think about ways that you can potentially outsmart him. So yep. really good find. I had no idea that was the case. I mean, I remember playing a lot of Pac-Man when I was a kid. And I remember that there were even strategy guides for Pac-Man, right? Like here's all the tips and tricks for how to get really good at Pac-Man. And the only one that ever stuck with me was to move in the direction that you want to turn before you get to the corner. 
so that you don't stop, you know, that you kind of move into the corners quickly and smoothly. And I just, uh, I never really quite got the hang of it, but it's definitely a classic game. I think like back in the time, I can't remember the, the guy who made it. Um, I was looking at Toru Iwatani, but he was, he was a legend for the way that they set it up with this uh, pixel game. So pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that have, I mean, just really clever, genius ways of making the most out of the space that you have and the the capacity that you have. And so when you tear apart some of those consoles, there's almost nothing to the hardware by comparison to what we have today. But now it's like just amazing to see what they could make happen with just the basic microcontrollers and circuits and everything. Yeah, pretty cool. Plus, you can kind of make a Pac-Man-ish game on on a microbit. So now that I know that, I can add that little two cents in for the sixth graders. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to come up with something like Arcade or something like that for Pac-Man. So there's a lot of really cool things you can do with retro gaming in Python and helping to learn how to program. It's why, one of the reasons why we play so much Oregon Trail is because it's a great way to learn about loops and all the things that you can do with just an ongoing game loop and see how it works from day to day. Yep, very cool. And so your win of the week, what was that? <laughs> I have to say it was really just all of the wonderful feedback and everything that we've gotten from the broader Python community around uh, just being on PyBytes last week and recording an episode live with Michael and Brian. And it's always just nice to hang out with them and catch up. And, and they're just really great, fun guys to talk to. I think the last time we saw them both in person was at PyCon US in 2019. So hopefully... PyCon 2022, we'll be able to uh, get back together and, and hang out with them some more. But it's just really nice to to do that. And the live stream aspect of recording the episode was pretty cool. So hopefully we'll get a chance to to make that happen for the Teaching Python podcast too. Yeah, I, I, I always have such a great time. I'm talking to a lot of the, the Python developers, but laughing a lot with Michael Kennedy. My son, my youngest still thinks it's so cool that I had a recording with Michael Kennedy again. I don't know why that name stuck, I guess, because I listened to his podcast so much when I was first learning. So it's always like, that's Michael Kennedy. You saw him again? <laughs> was he wearing well, his glasses? They're, <laughs> they're basically celebrities. They you are. Know? <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll get to do that again soon. And it was a lot of fun to guest on someone else's podcast, mainly because we don't have to do as much editing after the fact, which is nice. <laughs> But a really a nice time, and it was fun to do it live. So hopefully we'll be able to do more of that. Cool. So we will get right into our main topic, and then we'll save our mini book review of the new Al Swigert book for after the main topic. But this week we wanted to talk about rubrics and assessments. And Kelly, I thought this was a really apt topic at this time of year because we're getting towards the end of the year. Most students' thoughts turn to finals and tests and all these big cumulative assessments at the end of the year. I think it comes as no surprise, we view this a little bit differently in our classroom for a number of reasons. But one of the major reasons is because we have a, uh, a nine week long course. We don't have this big end of year sort of exam schedule. We have to find ways to do assessments of student knowledge in a lot of different points in time over the course of the quarter. So it's a really good time for us to talk about how we do that and the ways that we do that. And then some ways that these rubrics and assessments could be used outside of the classroom as well. Yeah, I mean, we know our students well and formatively, we can rate all of our students coding level on a one, two, and three. But using the rubric that the kids can understand and use as a point of reference, I think has been a, a really cool thing that we've introduced. So yeah, I'm excited about talking about this topic. You know me, the nerdiness, my nerd uh, appeal is always with the teaching stuff. So I, I'm excited <laughs> to share what yeah. we, we, we found out about these. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely pretty cool. And what's just to, to set the stage for it, what is the purpose of assessments from a pedagogy standpoint? What is the reason for having assessments in the first place? So if used correctly, the rubric should guide the student as to what it is that we as teachers or as a curriculum want students to achieve. It's a place to set out right away the objectives of learning. It gives both of us, teachers and students, a goal 
saying maybe our objective is student must be able to write a basic function with two keywords, that's in a rubric. So the kids can look at an object and head towards that level. Another thing that you can do is it, it provides an opportunity for some constructive feedback. When you have a specific goal or specific criteria, you then have a way to measure above or beyond that criteria. So you are able to give more meaningful feedback. Oh, well, here you did not, and I'm very, I'm simplifying this to basic terms, but here you only put one argument, but you didn't set a default keyword argument or something. You're able to give them specific quality feedback in a timely way because it's in a, in a checklist sort of. And one of the other important things about rubrics is it allows students to actually analyze and grade their own work. I know when we give the rubrics, we like the kids to go through and highlight where or if they have completed that objective. So students are able to pretty much just grade themselves right away and see where they've met the the qualifications. And if they didn't meet the qualifications, they can go back and make sure they do. So it's like this benefit where they are almost in a no-fail situation. Yeah, and I think in the right way, though, too, it's it doesn't make it easier for them to get a grade. It doesn't like lower the standards, but it makes the standards more transparent and clear to the student to understand what the expectations are for them in order to achieve certain proficiencies. And this is something that's very different than when I was a student. So coming back into teaching and seeing how rubrics and assessments are being employed now, you have a whole range of very traditional things that are very familiar to me. The teacher may have a rubric, but they, you never see it as the student, right? So you just get this grade at the end and the teacher's using it simply to establish like a standard of fairness in their grading or consistency, even though there are plenty of studies that show that there's still plenty of variation that's there just to provide consistency in their grading and, and give them a framework. But what was surprising to me in a very pleasant way was how you can use rubrics to increase that transparency for the students, set clear expectations for them in terms of the standards that and proficiencies that they're supposed to achieve, and then make it so that it's a more of a partnership and learning. Here's what I expect you to learn. Here's what I expect you to be able to demonstrate for that learning. And then the student can turn it around and say, okay, here's what I've done. And then when you come back with the grade for it, if they have any questions about how their work was evaluated, you have specific points within the rubric that you can look at and say, here's where it measured up, here's where it exceeded, here's where it fell short. And the student has a really clear understanding of, did I get it? And I think that's really what we're trying to get to with this is, that student has a sense of, am I getting it? Am I understanding it? Am I achieving what is expected of me? Do I have realistic expectations in terms of the kinds of work that I'm producing, as well as the kind of work that's expected? And it just helps with that whole alignment between expectations for the student, the teacher, and then the broader community, whether that's administration or other courses, to be able to show here's the fair and transparent way that this has been assessed and evaluated. Yeah, and I, I think that's so true that the transparency is where it's at. And I can't remember when I started giving out the rubrics. I know it was early on, always when I had large projects, because most of the time we would use rubrics for uh, a presentation or some sort of scientific lab report or such big assessment that we would have in a science classroom. So as early on, I used the rubrics. But I, I think when I really started getting into understanding the transparency is when I was teaching NYP and design technology, because we had almost, it, it was almost subjective, I think, because we had rubrics that said by the end of year five of the NYP, the student will be able to do this. So if you're teaching the first year of NYP, you had to extrapolate what would it look like for that sixth grader who's starting out in design technology and you're aiming for where they are going in five years, which was nice, but a lot of teachers and a lot of administration would have issues with that. But for us in computer science, that just makes sense. We know where we want the kids to be before they go into high school. So we are able to automatically extrapolate first year, second year, and third year students in the middle school. So it's a nice thing to see. Before we go too much deeper, let's establish a baseline of what is a rubric. So 
Kelly, can you explain it to me? Like, I don't know anything and I've only been a teacher for a few years. (laughs) What is a rubric? (laughs) What is a rubric? What makes it a rubric versus other alternative assessments that can be employed? Okay. So it's funny because a lot of people, a lot of teachers have a love-hate relationship with rubrics. More or less, rubrics have... And depending on what type of rubric you're using, we use a different kind, and we'll talk about that later. But most of the time, a rubric is a set of objectives, either bullet point objectives or single objectives, and a level of completion or a level of accomplishment for each one of those objectives. So some people would have one, two, three, four for able to write Pepe or follow eight Pepe guidelines. And a four would be amazing. You're a developer and a one might be a newbie. So there's a huge gap. And a rubric just sets out almost like a Likert scale, maybe level. Does that sound about right? A Likert scale level of where that child or coder has met or that student has met in their, in their learning path. So that is the basic form of a rubric. It's a table. It's got criteria down the side and a level of achievement going across. Does that sum it up? Nice. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, that sounds familiar. And what's interesting is my first experience using rubrics was not in an education setting at all, but it was actually working in a corporate environment using them as scorecards for evaluating different vendors. So whether it was a technology vendor or I was actually working in the marketing space for a bit, we would use rubrics to evaluate different proposals from vendors to be able to see how they matched up and to be able to clearly and logically evaluate each of them on the merits of their proposal, both the tangible and intangible things. So you could really get to a better score for each of them. So the grade that they got was how close do we believe that they're going to fit the outcomes or the goals of the RFP or the evaluation that we're doing. And the critical part for that was to have the rubric before you started interviewing suppliers. So before you started looking at vendors, you needed to have your success criteria established to be able to decide who got the the work and who got awarded the contract. But this gave us a really clear understanding of what they could do against our original goals. And of course, it wasn't set in stone. We could still, if we needed to, change the rubric later based on new information. But it was once I came into teaching that I saw the value of having that same sort of system in an education context and how we were able to use that for evaluating students in a fair and consistent way and also giving them a clear set of guidelines in terms of what they're, what was expected of them in order to get the grade that they wanted. So using it to evaluate other marketing or other businesses is exactly the same way that we would use to evaluate students, except for the fact that we give the rubrics to the students. I think it's really important that the students have the rubric. Now, this is where a lot of problems come with teachers wanting to use rubrics because they are quite labor intensive. You have to know specifically what you are trying to get out of the assignment. Just like when you were looking for or evaluating a client or a business of such, you knew exactly what you wanted from that business. You knew that you needed to have a certain cost, a certain time frame, or whatever. And so you were able to build out that rubric prior. That takes a lot of work. And sometimes if these rubrics aren't built right, then either the students get all A's or not really judged critically, I should say, not punitively, but critically enough to give proper feedback, or they're too hard and the kids can't achieve the goals. So I think that's one of the hard things about writing a quality rubric. And that's why we've done our rubric a little differently. Yeah, you really do have to have a vision of what a good project looks like or a good piece of work looks like. You can't just after the fact look at it and say, well, I've got 20 different submissions here and I'm going to take the best five. And you're right back into being subjective again. Mm -hmm. So the rubric is there to give structure at least to that subjectivity and make it more objective in the analysis and evaluation. Yeah. While not 
like hindering the creativity. So there's like that fine line between being too prescriptive. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to put this number of lines. You're going to do this many variables or whatever. When you do that, then you've actually just had regurgitation of what you said. So it's a really fine line between creativity and objectivity. I guess that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So let's talk a little bit about how we use it for Python programming. So how we use rubrics to evaluate code and to make sure that we're able to take something that can be wildly different. Two different students' code submissions are often as unique as their fingerprints. So how do we use these rubrics to evaluate their work? Yeah, so we actually have used what's called a single point rubric. Now, I was just trying to Google her name. I can't remember her name from the cult of pedagogy. She's really brought these back into mainframe. She's written a couple of articles. Jennifer Gonzalez. She's a cool person to follow. So if you are an educator and you want to follow someone cool, Jennifer Gonzalez is great. But she brought them back into light. Now, she didn't make up the single point rubric. This was actually done back in 2000 by a person named Mary Dietz. There was a huge study on the effectiveness of a single point rubric. And what I mean by a single point rubric is we set these goals in the middle, but we haven't done the task of saying this is what a below level and this is what above level looks like. We've set the standard, this is what I want you to know to achieve and anything above and beyond, you are going to be able to identify that. And so a single point rubric's easy to write, easier to write, I should say. And I think a lot less information that will overwhelm a student. Let's give a concrete Python example for this. So let's say we have an assignment where we're really evaluating, or at least one aspect of what we're evaluating is their ability to use lists, for example. The middle of the road example might be they can create the list, they can append things to the list, they can pop from the list, and maybe they can access an element by its index in the list as well. So that would be like your single point. Here are the criteria for what we expect someone to do in this area to get the meets expectations or the middle of the road score for this. And that would be the only criteria. So the above that and the below that would still be blank. And you could look at it and say, well, what more have they done with it? Or what less have they done with it? Because we omit the above and below, it gives the students the opportunity to extend in a variety of different directions here. Whereas if we were very prescriptive about it, we might say, well, you know, someone who exceeds expectations would also be able to use list slicing and they might be able to use some other list methods. They might use the iter tools module to iterate over um, things. But then when we put all those things into that exceeds category, so that upper box like that shows that, what we've really done instead of giving them opportunities to grow, we've given them another list of things to accomplish. We've boxed them in to doing what we think should be exceeds expectations instead of going way beyond that and finding something really exciting for them that actually does exceed expectations. Absolutely. And we actually, we put in for data types, we made it even more generic and we're always tweaking this. So we're not saying we have the ready to sell copies, although we might have that on the Teaching Python store later. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're still working on editing this, and I'm trying to make a generic one for sixth grade. We've made the one for seventh grade because I think seventh grade at least is easier. And I don't know why, but it's easier to start in the middle. We know what a middle year child can do, and then the sixth graders and eighth graders are in the other side. So, for example data types. The student uses correct data types and understands the reason why they've used that type. So why would they use a list over a dictionary or a string over an integer? And they can justify it. So maybe they've chosen to use a list instead of a dictionary and we're like, dictionary is probably a better choice. Well, they they can say, yes, but with this list, I could, wanted to do A, B, and C. So they can explain why that data type is, is chosen. And then that allows for the flexibility of that code to happen because of student choice. So right. Right. it's pretty cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I, I really like it. What I see is the students that want to just do enough because maybe it's not their best class or maybe it's not the one that they're most excited about, but they still want to get a good grade. This way, they at least know what that entails. They know what they need to do in order to get the grade that they want. My students that love this stuff, they just love the course, they love Python, they love programming, they see this and they say, oh, that's all you want me to do? Let me go do four other things because I'm really excited about this and, and everything. And then the kids who are falling behind or who are struggling to know what the, is expected of them, maybe they don't get everything, but at least they got a few more areas improved because they knew what they were shooting for. They knew what to strive for instead of just missing the mark. Yeah. And I think it's really cool. So we were actually starting to build in and I was giving some thought about this for the sixth grade, the PEP 8 rules. And documentation's huge. <laughs> and right. going through the documentation for sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, what is it that we want them to know in order to have nice code? Well, in Moo, it always will tell them up talk about the white space or the the use not use of the white space and you can use the tidy button. So for maybe for PEP eight, the student uses basic PEP eight rules. We're talking the four spaces, the formatting of the code blocks the line length that doesn't exceed 79 characters, clear and meaningful variables, right? That's maybe like a, a sixth grader doing that. But then the sixth grader might say, oh, I've gone above and beyond because I started to learn basic functions and I now know that I have to do two lines between each function and the documentation has to, or whatever, doc, doc strings have to be inside that function underneath whatever. You know, I'm right. pushing, trying to look for stuff. <laughs> But that's well, what I we're mean, playing with. Right. And there's there's plenty of things there. And I like this idea of having a generic rubric as a starting point. Because if you think about your assignments you're giving, a lot of these rules for the rubric are going to be the same from assignment to assignment. So if you have 80% of your rubric is already completed in a generic fashion, it means that you as the teacher can extend the rubric to add an additional 20% that may be assignment specific or project specific or something like that. And this means that you get that still that great level of customization and adaptability to the assignment at hand, but you're also not reinventing the wheel all the time. You've got something that was designed to work and cover the 80% of the assignment and the right 80%. It's not just the like, oh, here's all the boring stuff that Mr. Tiber asks for every time. It's no, these are the basic expectations. We expect you to have good style. We expect you to have a program that actually works and functions and is bug free. Those are things that we can put in there that should be the base expectations for every assignment that's turned in. Yeah, that's why we wrote for the seventh grade. And that's why we guinea pigged them for this year. And we're still, like I said, still tweaking it. But the the cool thing about this and and why I think like it works for us is that that evidence. There's a, actually in our single point rubric, we have uh, four columns. We have a not yet. Here's our expectations. Then we have an evidence. And so not only are the kids saying, oh, yeah, I've done this, but now they need to go in and say, how did I meet that standard? Oh, I did that on, on lines. Give me an example. I did this on line, line four. I did this on line 100. Right. And if they go above and beyond, say, again, using generic PEP 8, maybe they did something extra and they went to the documentation, and they actually read the documentation. Maybe they had been doing it all along through the coding, but they mm -hmm. actually went to documentation and found that specific. They went to go um, research something on their own and learn about it. That's that area where they've gone beyond the basics. And we've added in that, I joke around, 0.5 to 1 point extra for the evidence because we can't give them over 100. That's just silly. But we could, in theory, if we wanted to. Well, you know, the points don't really matter, right? Yeah, points don't really matter. What's 125 <laughs> points? Yeah. <laughs> One million points. It's like whose line it is anyways. Welcome to middle school where the points are made up and the learning is real. That's the whole goal. It's like the points at the end of the day are there to act as a signal. It's just there to signal to the student how much of the expectations did they achieve. And we want to give them some room to see that they went past what was expected of them. And in our school, we do have this cap on the final grade where once they had 100%, 
they can't go any higher. So there is some limits to what they can do. Although there are plenty of students who secretly know that they got 107, even if the report <laughs> card says 100. Yeah, it's quite funny. I think eventually we're going to have to raise our expectations. We already have pretty high standards, but the kids keep meeting them. It's just amazing what they can do. And having these rubrics to show them at the end of, the, we use this mostly at the end of the course this year. We're thinking about using it for our other projects to start teaching but I don't want to teach to the rubric. I kind of have fun making it up as we go. No. <laughs> the other thing that's really important here, and this is the part where I believe it goes beyond kind of the teaching pedagogy and the nerdiness of like education and learning and into this just being a really useful tool. It does not have to be limited to education. You can use this for things like vendor evaluations or suppliers or whatever you want in a business world. You can also use it with junior developers. So if you're a senior developer mentoring a junior developer, if you go through a rubric with them of their code and do a code review with them and talk about the different things that they're doing in their code, it helps them see where they are doing very well, where they have opportunities to improve. This sort of scorecard rubric evaluation, if it's done in the right way with a level of trust and understanding that this is there to give structure and context to the growth that they are undergoing, a rubric could be very great for that mentoring relationship as well. But you can use it outside of work. It doesn't have to be work or teaching or anything like that. You can use it um, when you're buying a car. If you want to buy a car, you can make a rubric for here are all the things that I want in my car. And it helps you structure any sort of complex decision with multiple dimensions or variables into a set of clearly defined success criteria so that what each factor means to you, you can even go as far as putting weights on it, that sort of thing, so that you get to a really clear understanding of this is the right decision to make. So it's interesting when you step even further back from rubrics, not just as a teaching tool or not just as a form of assessment, they're a decision support system. They're there to help you make better decisions. And in this case for teaching, we use them to make better decisions about what grade a student should get. And the student can use it to make better decisions about what they're going to learn and where they're going to put their effort into the coding. But they're a decision support tool that you can use for just about anything where there's a fair amount of complexity and ambiguity that you need to be able to clearly work through and come to a well-supported decision. Yeah. Can you imagine when instead of those job criteria where they tell you, no, you have to have this many years of work or whatever, it may give you a rubric. And instead of just showing your project on you know GitHub or whatever you've made in the past that could have been helped by whoever, they give you a rubric and you say, okay, here's your rubric. You have to complete this to be a junior whatever, a junior developer or front-end designer. I am sure they have something like that out there in the workforce. I would hope so. I know they have that with new people that come in to teach. I, I had a rubric when I graded you. Did he crawl on the floor <laughs> during the lockdown? No. Yes. Check. Higher. <laughs> Five bonus points for that. <laughs> but I want to say one last thing about types of rubrics that we I, we forgot to mention. I found this really cool rubric, very convoluted, must have been a math teacher. I put the link up on our show notes, but it must have been from a professor of math or something who, who developed this. But it was the... Uh, 2% amazing category and they had this percentages <laughs> you got 40% for this something else for this and then the amazing category was the 2% and so you still had that ability to wow somebody actually I think it was a programming rubric from did you pull, pull it up yeah I pulled it up on the screen here so it's actually a, um, a weighted rubric so they have uh, weighting with it they put in a written component with correctness so there was just one single point there, but the programming component of it was program correctness was 55%, readability was 23%, documentation was 20%, and amazing was 2%. So if you did everything they expected from you and did it perfectly, you could get a 98 on the assignment. But to get 100, you have to find something amazing to implement. And I like this challenge because... It's not just for the students that always have to get 100, the perfectionists out there. It's for everyone who's like, wait, you know, hold my Red Bull. I'm going to code this because I know I can do something amazing here. And they really get excited and into it and they get rewarded for doing so. So maybe they're not the ones who go from a 98 to 100, but they might go from an 88 to a 90 because they found something amazing that they could implement. 
I think it's from Northeastern University, Corey College of Computer Sciences. So we'll put that in the show notes. I thought that was interesting. I don't think I can do all, have time to do all the math <laughs> that they did, but hey, there you go. Well, there's another there's, example uh, for you guys. There's this really cool programming language that might be able to help you with that. <laughs> automating it right yep yep you can do the calculations <laughs> type in the scores and have it have it all calculated so i mean that's maybe the other thing to do too is give a student an assignment where the assignment is to create a rubric program that they can put in the different weights and the different criteria and they have to code it with python so maybe there's some ways that you can make the rubric the assignment and not just the evaluation tool that would be that's another cool thing like you, you can even have the kids if you want you know maybe you have some middle schoolers or some high schoolers and you can say what do you need in order to make a program that does x and then they need to build out a rubric of criteria so you yeah. can have a, a whole bunch of kids pull together and write a rubric which is always a nice thing to do we used to do that with nyp what did you need to to make an app what would make an app be the number one app what would you do for architectural design what would make it high level building or etc and you have the kids build out the criteria and as you're doing that you're having a, a conversation about the objectives and you combine all the kids it's a lot of work but it's a really effective rubric building so nice. another fun thing nice well i have to say this is probably a deeper dive into rubrics than I thought I would be doing five years ago <laughs> before I became a teacher. But you've been a good sport about how, like going into Docker containers with me and talking about all kinds of really geeky tech stuff. So I love going into the geeky teacher stuff with you. I, I love how you said, yeah, this is going to be a short recording, like 20, 30 minutes. And I, you know, you put me talking about rubrics and I'm like, oh, yes, what else can we talk about? <laughs> but I'll stop fun. there. We won't go any further. <laughs> well, speaking of what else we can talk about, let's do a little mini book review on the new Al Swigert book that's coming out. We happen to get an advanced copy of it. It's called The Big Book of Small Python Projects. And it looks like it's coming out, I believe, in April, although I wouldn't quote me on that. It's going to be coming out soon. And you can pre-order it now on No Starch Press's website. I think they also have a pre-order available on Amazon as well, so you can get started on it. But the uh, Kelly, why don't you tell us about the premise of this book? Like, What is this book, and, and who is it geared towards? Oh. Who's it geared towards? Now you got me stumped. Um, I think it's all beginners. Uh, it's pretty, not beginners, but maybe intermediate. It's definitely, I would not have picked it up at first because it doesn't really walk through the code. For me, it seems like a really good teaching book for teachers because of the, the questions that are offered in the book. I'm just trying to pull up the book as I go. But the whole concept for me is that after you've gone through these projects, Al puts in a little bit of thought questions there and guides you in ways on how you can explore the program further. So I just think it's a really neat concept of how do you get those questions um, and those conversations going with maybe students you're working with. Yeah, and what I like about this, the book itself has 81 projects in there, and they, he may sneak a few more in before it actually gets published. We got this advanced copy of it, but it's coming up to like 394 or 400 pages of Python projects, and the goal of this is to give you a lot of different project examples so you can see different ways of implementing things. I, I agree with you. It's not really designed for beginners. It's, it's not necessarily a book that teaches you through code the way that he does with Automate the Boring Stuff or Invent Your Own Computer Games with Python, his two previous books. But in this case, it's more like, here's a program, here's what it does, here's the source code, and then here's some questions to help you understand what it's doing. So it doesn't break programs down into chunks as much as the beginner books, but it definitely gives you a lot of code that if you've completed those beginner books and you want to look through it in a deeper way or in a different way to learn ideas, it works pretty well. So for me, when I was looking through this, there were a couple that stuck out to me as projects that we've done in class. For example, there's a blackjack game in here. 
So we do a lot with making blackjack in the classroom. But if you look at the way that he's got it set up, there's a lot of great ideas in here that students could pull from. So he has things like how we do the move calculations or how we determine the player's moves. How do we play the cards? How do we represent the cards on the screen? Like all of these different things that if a student made their own basic version of blackjack, they have an example problem that they can look at and see the solution in a different way than that they came up with to be able to see some of those new ideas and see ways they can make it work. Al has the Mondrian art generator and I love coding the, giving the kids this, the challenge of doing this in the turtle library and it, we teach only basic functions on how to make a square and how to make a rectangle. And we use a couple of parameters with color and position, but he has it coded with, and I'm just trying to flip through this, with system import try I'm looking for this old things yeah just in basic kind of basic kind of code I'm assuming where would this come out oh it's a pretty lengthy one it's one of the longer ones it's 184 lines of code we'll see but uh, yeah it's just driving out on the canvas it's not using turtle it's using canvas points and length it's kind of how it how he has these questions at the end. What error happens if you do this? What happens if you change it? So again, like the, oh, it's in pillow. There it is. Use the pillow module, which I never used before. So hey, learn something, try something new. But I think I like it. I like how it has just these little snippets. I know some of these are not new games or not new projects, but it's the co the questions at the end of the projects that make you think. So I've been using this with my eighth grade students. We went through and just grabbed the bagels program at the beginning. So it's a game where you're trying to guess a three digit number and you get clues based on what you guess, whether you have the numbers right or wrong or in the wrong place or whatever. And it, what I like about it is the way that he introduces it, he sets it up and then just like lets the program speak for itself. There's good comments in there so you can follow along with what's happening. But there's also the level where not everything is explained. So you still have to look at it and try to understand what does this line do. One of the things that we're doing as we go through it uh, with my students is to go through it line by line and keep asking ourselves that question, why is this line here? What does it do? Is there a way that we could do this better? And so that idea of questioning every line as you go through it is really critical for the learning. And I remind them that like, look, the source code for this is all out there. You could copy this right from the book or from the GitHub page or whatever and paste it into a, an editor, but then you don't actually get that process of going through and trying to understand what the code is doing. Now, one of the things that's, you know, I think maybe good and bad is that, you know, I noticed that there's a lot of things that are different in terms of the approach than what I've been teaching in the classroom. And I'll give you an example, you know, in the code here, a lot of these examples use a string dot format method to insert values into the string. And I've been really trying to get most of my students to use F strings for their programs. Now I know that the dot format method is more compatible. There's a lot of good reasons for that. It's a little bit longer lived, but the F strings have been something we've been teaching in the classroom. So when we encounter it, it's a little bit foreign to the students, but that we also get the opportunity to be able to say, you know, hey, whenever you see a dot format method, you can replace that with an F string approach. And here's how we would do that. So they are engaging with the code more as a result of this because they're then modifying the code to fit something that they're more familiar with and getting it to output the same thing. Yeah, and then my my, I guess it's not an issue, but it's a more of a, a sixth grade level issue of trying to get some of these ASCII art programs up in Moo is a little bit difficult. Sometimes it they just won't run or it won't take the library. I, I'm not sure on the technical, I'm sure you can explain that. They just won't run out the, the cool app or the cool artwork. For example, there's like the bitmap one, which is really cool that I, I put in there and I was, I was like, oh, I'm gonna use this one. And it just comes out in one single <laughs> column in Moo Editor. And then trying to get the kids in VS Code or, or PyCharm is not my primary goal. And it doesn't run in Replit. Those are just a little bit of the sad things. But I am going to do it myself because I thought that was cool with the bitmap. And then the hangman has a couple. So lots of visuals, which is 100% awesome for sixth graders. But doesn't run that well in Moo yet. Yeah. And and for individual learners, this could definitely be 
something that you could grab before doing 100 days of code learning process, right? So if you're doing 100 days of code and you've got a, a system or a methodology that you're following for that, that's this that's great. But if you also had this, if you were struggling for what am I going to code today, this would be something great to you know grab one of these programs that looks like it's interesting, follow along with it, make your modifications, use the extension questions that he creates at the end of those, so that you get a really solid like hour or two long project out of each of these. Um, they're not that long by themselves, but it's that process of going through line by line, understanding it, and then doing the modification where you get the most valuable learning experience. Yeah, just one last thing, I, I promise. What I really like about Al's code is that. I can understand it as I read it. It it's very clearly written. There's not a lot of hidden lambda or list comprehensions. It's very clear code for the beginner. So that's yeah, my two cents. For, I, for I can sure. read it. <laughs> I can read it, and I don't get scared. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of of choices that are intentionally made to make the code more accessible for beginners and for people who maybe only learned a few things like yes you could use a list comprehension in one of this one of the places and it would be a single line bit of code but maybe doing it as a more traditional for loop is a better way to do it for someone who's only been coding for a few weeks or has needs that ability to quickly get in and understand the code and make it accessible to them there's very clearly a lot of choices that have been made in that direction and that's where you can really see that come through in the writing both of the code and the nod code sections of it is that this is really almost like a love letter to those beginner programmers like here's a bunch of really fun programs that you can write and they're not all games and they're not all art but there's always something interesting about each one of those that you can take away from it and use in your own programs yeah and they also have this calendar maker so i think we're going to look at that when we do our schedule app that'll be a cool little add-in here throw that in and see what if we can mash them together that would that be one's cool. really fun that one's really yeah. fun. So I started coding that one, and I'm, I think most of the way through it um, today. And it's been really nice because, yes, there are calendar programs. There are lots of different ways that you can do this. But he's doing it all with the date time module. So you get to think a lot about those. How do I use the dates, the days of the weeks? How do I get all of these things that we need to be able to make it work? then can I create a visual calendar out of that? And most of it is all ASCII art, right? So the calendar that gets created, there's a text output of it, and it's all lines and boxes using ASCII art, and it's pretty cool to see. And it just that, that was a nice little code to bring in the tuples and teach them why it's a tuple. It's kind of nice. Yep. Yep. Cool. So lots of little nuggets and snippets in here. I think it's a great companion book to automate the boring stuff or invent your own computer games with Python. If you want just some, almost like a little smorgasbord of ideas to play with that's what it's there for yeah it's gonna be a nice compliment because i am still back into finishing my automate the the boring stuff video course because the book wasn't enough for me (laughs) yep you can always learn it more always learn more so that's the new book coming out from al swigert hopefully um, within the next few weeks you can pre-order it now on no starch press and i believe on amazon Uh, the book is called the big book of small python projects and we look forward to seeing it hit the shelves soon. Okay. Cool. Kelly, I think that kind of wraps it up for us. We've, uh, we've gone a little bit longer, two topics this week instead of one, which is a fun thing. We're going to try to bring in more of these book reviews because we do have more books hitting our shelves. Hopefully we'll get a copy of Python Basics uh, reviewed for everyone as well so that you can see that. Anything else you want to share with everyone? Any other upcoming events to think about? Any new products in the uh, Teaching Python store? Um, oh, well, new products. I think that that's my new hobby. I am so addicted to building t-shirts and we have a, we, I, maybe it's not as clever as everyone thinks, but we, I think we're clever. <laughs> we come up with stuff on in the morning at seven in the morning, seven thirty. But yes, my, my favorite cup is the power of yet. We have a coffee cup. It's so nice to drink out. You get the reminder to say this. I think for me, it's the fact of always adding in that word yet to the kit for the students when they say, I can't code. And I'm just like, yet. And with the power of yet, my coffee cup sitting on the desk, they don't have a choice. And they roll their eyes. (laughs) It's a really good one. And we're going to have more of these coming out. I think we're doing the same sort of thing uh, that we do with like content creation or with my approach to photography is we're going to create a lot of things and see what people like and the things that people like we'll keep the things that they don't like we're going to get rid of and we'll just keep making more stuff and having fun with it 
Yeah. So it's kind of this podcast brought to you by us. It's supported by the Teaching Python store, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I, we don't need John to lose his hair before with all the editing. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. So we need to pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe get a beer. Nice. And <laughs> possibly, possibly. So we're also looking forward. We're going to try to be at the uh, PyCon US Education Summit virtually in May. And if you're able to join in on, that'd be great. We do have a lot of new uh, social media platforms to connect with us on. We have a Facebook page now. I think we have an Instagram page all you know, set up so that we could connect our store to it. But we're going to start publishing more of our content to those mediums as well. So if you'd like to reach out to us, the best way is still through the Teaching Python website, that's teachingpython.fm, or through Twitter at Teaching Python. But we're now on Facebook as Teaching Python. We're on Instagram as Teaching Python. Kelly, you have one more yes, thing to add here. Yes, and we are going to be presenting at the Innovation Institute. There are still a couple spaces available, last-minute spaces. You have to get on quick if you're interested. We will be using our microbits to do a Wild About Robots presentation, but the boxes that are going out are worth the cost of the Institute. So even if you can only attend our session, the box of stuff you get is just great and then all the stuff will be on recording if you join the institute yeah i don't know if i'm supposed to say this out loud but i can't see how we're not losing money on this because the box <laughs> has so many really cool things in it like you in our presentation alone you get a micro bit you get servos you get electronics you get 3d printed parts you get really cool oh. stickers for your laptop um and a that's just board. one of the sessions <laughs> A breadboard, right? So there's just all this stuff that's coming your way and all kinds of really cool things that you're going to be able to play with and learn about coming in the box. So if you want one of those boxes and you want to attend the Innovation Institute, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Tell them when you sign up that Teaching Python sent you because our boss comes gleefully running across campus to tell us about it every time someone signs up through Teaching Python. And we're excited to have more of our listeners attend as well. I think the cost is fairly reasonable since it is virtual this year. I think it's a little over $100 for the three-day session. Yeah. So it's definitely worth um, looking into and you probably will get as much or more out of just the box. I think you get about $150 worth of stuff for $150. We're working for free. Again, that's why we have a shop yeah. to, uh, to support us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's the next big conference that we'll be at. It's the Pinecrest Innovation Institute. Look for it in the show notes. I think that pretty much does it. There was something else, some other um, social media site that I signed up for that I was like, I got to tell Kelly about this on the air because she'll laugh at me for it. But oh, I'm on Clubhouse now. Oh, I'm on, oh Clubhouse. I'm on yes. Clubhouse. Yes, the new social media network. I'm at SM Tiber on Clubhouse. I was on the Python Weekly Hangout on Friday night for a little bit of time. And it was really at 9 nice. p.m. I was asked. asleep. Yeah, that was the only downside. I would have asked you to join too, but I knew you were already unconscious. So I did get an invite, um, but I did not join. I am also on yeah. it and I am at Kelly Pared. So. Well, so that's our show for the week. Lots of pedagogy, lots of new books, lots of social media, lots of good things happening in the Python space. We look forward to hearing from you and thank you all for your support for Teaching Python. This is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off. <laughs> <laughs>